had a chance to meet you yet. I'm one of the pastors of Midtown Church, and so glad that you have uh, joined us on this rainy morning uh, for a new series that we're beginning uh, out of the book of Ephesians that we're calling, uh, Who Do You Think You Are? Who do you think you are? You could say, you could say it nicely as a question, and you could like, say it as a, a confrontation. Like, who do you think you are? But that's probably not how we're going to say it throughout the series, but whatever. But um, anyways, I'm really looking forward to this, this, uh, this time together. We're going to be in it for uh, the next seven weeks. We're going to just take the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, and then we're going to take a, a break, and, uh, back in the, and then later in the summer, we're going to pick back up with the last three chapters of Ephesians and, ra- and wrap up the whole book that way. But So this first three uh, first uh, three chapters, again, we're calling, Who Do You Think You Are? And I want you to think about that question. Who are you? Who do you think you are? You know, how do you introduce yourself? Who, who do you, like, who, what comes to your mind when I ask, like, who are you? Like, how do you fill in the blank? Who am, you know, who am I? I am blank. What, what would you say there? What, what, how, do you, how do you answer that? Do you, do you say that you're, uh, you're rich, you're poor, you're young, you're old, you're married, you're single, you're divorced, you're widowed? Like, you're, are you a parent? Are you, and you think about your employee, like, who, who, who are you? It's a question that we often think about, don't we? Or at least, uh, at least if maybe if not on a conscious level, on a subconscious level, we, we're asking ourselves this question quite often, like, who, who am I? And it's an important question, you know, right? Isn't it? Because, like, who you are should determine what you do, right? Like, uh, if, if you know who you are, then you know what to do. And you know really what your purpose is in life and, like, in all, like, why you were created if you know who you are. But if you don't know who you are, you don't know what to do. Like, if I didn't know that I was camp in Enoch and Della's dad, then I would not be a very good father to them, and I would treat them like any other kid. But if I know that I am their dad, which I do, then I look out for them, and I care for them, because who I am informs what I do. It's a really important deal that we would know who we are. But man, knowing who we are is tricky, isn't it? Because it changes all the time, doesn't it? Like, you think about it like when you were little, who were you? Were you? Are you the firstborn? Are you the middle child? Are you the, you know, are you the last in the line? Are you, were, you the, were you the chubby kid? Were you, were you the smart kid? Were you the athletic kid? Were you the nerdy kid? Are you, were you the artsy kid? Like, who, who were you? I remember uh, when I was in fourth grade elementary school, um, my, uh, my parents, we didn't have a ton of money growing up, and one day uh, my, my mom took me to go buy new shoes, and she took me to Kmart. And so I looked for the coolest shoes that Kmart had, and uh, they were like these knockoff Nikes called Hoops. Hoops. Awesome. And so I got my hoops, and I wore them to school the next day, and everybody in school called me Generic Jake. Still want to cry when I think about it a little bit. Don't, please don't call me Generic Jake. I never wore the shoes again, really, literally, never wore the shoes again, because I wanted to be the cool kid. I wanted to be the cool kid, and I learned really quick that it mattered what kind of shoes you have if you want to be considered cool. And so I made a point to always have really cool shoes, at least I did for a, a while. And uh, that, that was a big deal to me because of that situation there. But like, as you go on in life, you enter middle school, you enter high school, like, man, you're, you, who you are, your identity 
really begins to like get into like conflict and chaos, doesn't it? Like you, you enter a new school, middle school, and like it's pouring in from all, all these other schools if you came from a decent-sized town, right? And like, like it's new, new authorities, new friends, new, you know, new teachers, new responsibilities, all that stuff. And everybody's got an idea of who they think that you are, or at least who they think that you ought to be. And then during that time, it becomes a really big deal to you, like what you wear, what shoes you have, what, what your haircut is, you know, like what group you're going to be a part of. And like, are you on the outside looking in on the group that you want to be a part of? Or are you a part of that group? And like, man, like that's really a big deal. Like who, who are you? And I mean, that begins to get shaped during that time. But then you go off to college, right? And when you're off at, off at college, you kind of see it as a chance to hit the reset button if you want. And you're like, okay, now I can really redefine who I am because you, you've left your family and you've left your community most likely and you, you've left your church if you were a part of a church. And like, you can think, okay, who, who am I now? And so you kind of make some decisions. I'm going to start dressing this way or I'm going to start doing, doing this. Or I've always wanted to be called by this, this name instead of my full name or whatever. And you like decide this is when I'm going to make that happen. And so you, you go off to... Uh, Go off to college and you're making the lifestyle decisions. Like, am I going to drink? Am I not going to drink? Am I going to sleep around? Or am I not going to sleep around? Am I going to go to church? Am I not going to go to church? Do drugs, not do drugs. Go to class, not go to class. Like, you're just making all these decisions. What am I going to study? What's, what's, what, uh, what's, uh, what career path do I want to get on? And all of those things are beginning to shape who you are and who you think you are. And then, and then you graduate, right? And then you're lost. Because it's like, man, I'm, now I'm supposed to be an adult, but I don't feel like an adult, and I'm not ready to be an adult, and I think an adult's supposed to have a good job, and I don't have a good job yet, and all, all of that stuff. And now you're really like, like identity chaos, but then hopefully you get, you get a good job, you know what I mean, the career that you want to be in. And then, man, that really shapes your identity, because then you just begin to think that's who you are, Right? Like, I've got this job, and now if I could really succeed in this area of this career, then this is who I am. This makes me who I am, or I can really build a name for myself. And so, like, your identity ends up getting consumed by your career. And some of us just stay there, but some of us end up getting a family as well. Maybe you meet someone, you get, you get married, and you think, okay, this is awesome. Now, now I've found someone who's going to help me be the person I want to be. Except that person is thinking the exact same thing. And so you got two identities coming together. There's like, you know, it's about me. No, it's about me. And we call that marriage. And now you got to figure out your new identity because it's a we identity. It's like, okay, who are we? Not just who am I? And that's, that's difficult. That's kind of tricky. And so you kind of start navigating that. And then you might have kids. And if you have kids, then man, that again, rocks your world when it comes to your identity. Because now you're, now you're a mom. And like when in the process of becoming a mom, like, Women, that changes your appearance a whole lot initially, right? Not always, but initially when you're pregnant, that changes your appearance and that messes with your identity because in our culture, man, your identity is so tied to how you look. And so then you become a mother and that's a big deal. Like dads, you become a dad and then like that's a a huge deal. At least it should be. You should feel the weight and responsibility of that. And so now you're like, you got life to take care of and your life ends up centering around this little life. And it he or she determines like what you eat and and if you sleep like if if at all if you sleep and then like determines like you know what you do with your free time and what time you get up in the morning i mean everything is around this little being and you're like all right okay this is what life looks like and these hobbies and these friends and these extracurricular stuff that you you are a part of your identity kind of how you saw like all of that stuff just goes away or or at least it's, it's strongly altered or affected because you've got this child at home and it's really kind of changed who you are and then the child grows up and the children grow up and they they like don't need you as much 
And then they like move out of the house and now you're empty nester and like you think you look at your your husband or your wife if you're still married and you think okay now now who are we because our whole life is centered around this guy or these guys and for so long and now like who who are we because you know identity you got identity (laughs) crisis during that time that's the midlife crisis can set in during that time because you just don't know who who you are and then and then you know you retire, and that goes away. Like, it, guys, you feel that? Your, your identity is like in crisis or in chaos or at least in flux all the time. Do y'all feel that? Because I, I feel that. Like, you just take a step back and look into that. You're like, man, I, I don't know who I am. I thought I did, and then you said all that stuff, and like, I don't even know anymore. But uh, who are you? Who do you think you are? How do you fill in the blank? I am. Let me ask you a different question. Because that question is really hard to answer. But let, let's, go, let's go to the Bible. Let's talk about the, the idea of who does God say that we are? Who does God say that we are? And to know that, you've got to basically go back to the, to the very beginning, to the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 1. So if you want, you can flip open to Genesis chapter 1, or you can just read along uh, with the words on the screen. But in Genesis 1... See where I am on my notes. Um, you've got this really awesome uh, scene where God's making man, and He gives us incredible insight into why He creates us and who we are when He creates us. And so, in Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-six, it says, "Then, uh, then God said, let us make man.' And then let me spot, let us. That's 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 like a reference to the Trinity, right there. That's, you know, you see that. I don't know if you've, that's been pointed out to you before, but like God, three persons." Uh, uh, one God, three persons. But let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, a couple big big things to point out here. When God creates us, he defines us. He gives us, he tells us what our identity is. I've kind of highlighted the key words here, but like, uh, you know, create us in his own image. In the image of God, earlier it said that he would create man in his own image in his likeness. And basically what God is saying there is that I'm, I'm creating man to, to have this role of reflecting what I'm like. And the reason that this is what they're going to do is because who they are, because who we are you know, determines what we do, who they are is that they're my image bearers. They're, they're basically my mirrors. Mankind are to be my reflectors, to show people who I am, what, what I'm like. And so God, say, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a loving God, and so when we love, we are showing people what God is like. And God is an honest God. He's a truthful God. So when we tell the truth, we're showing people what God is like, that he's a God who tells the truth. When God's a forgiving God, or, and so when we forgive, we do that. God's merciful, on and on and on. God's generous. When we're generous, we show God what God's like. He's like, that's why I created you. That's your identity. You are to be my image bearers. I'm making you my likeness so people can see what I'm like. Now, that's, that's pretty profound, right? That's 
really uh, helpful to know if that's what God created us to do and if that's who God says that we are. Um, let me see. The, uh, now, one of, the, one of the results of this is that if that's what we were created to do, then, oh, and created to be, then that really changes the way that we always kind of think about our identity, right? Because oftentimes when we're thinking about, like, who am I? We think about, like, I, who, one, we're asking the question as if it's all about us. And two, we're thinking about, like, who do I want others, how do I want others to perceive me and to think about me and to look at me? And, like, we're making it about us. But God says it's, it's, not, a, it's not really about you. God says it's about him. And that you were made to bear his image so people would know what he's like. And so instead of asking the question and being one of the real driving questions in our lives, is like, man, if I do this, what will people think about me? How will people see me? Instead, the question that we ought to be asking is, man, in this situation, how can I help people best get a picture of what God is like? I mean, if we would just take that away from this message right here and like start living that out, that would have profound implications on our life. Like, just think Jesus was great at this. Like Jesus, it was said that if you see me, you have seen the Father. That Jesus was called the image of, of, of God. That he, uh, that, um, you know, that he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like he's a, he was like the perfect mirror. He was a sinless mirror. That everything that could be seen about God's character was made visible on earth through his life and death and resurrection. He was inv- the image of the invisible God. Jesus was great at that. Well, Jesus was great at that because that's what mankind was supposed to do. And God, coming in the form of man, lived out the life that we were all created to live, the life that we've all failed to live. But you look at what Jesus did, you think, that's what I was created to do. We were all to be image bearers. Every time we look at a mirror, guys, it should remind us, oh, I see my reflection here, this mirror. Well, that's what I was made to do with God. We are to reflect what his character is like. Now, a couple of takeaways here that are, that's really important as we kind of jump into this. First thing that I want us to see in regards to identity is that, according to God, our identity is received, not achieved. And guys, that is very contrary to our common, common ideas, right? We think that we have to do something in order to be something. Jesus said, or God said, no, this is, I'm making you this. You need to receive this. Because this is who you are, and then who you are should determine what you do and not the other way around. And like that's super, super helpful if you just believe that. Who you are is, is, is received from God, not achieved by something that you do. If you believe that, man, it'll free you from the comparison trap. It'll free you from a lot of the coveting that goes on in Marx or society and all, all of the competitiveness between people. Because it's like, look, look, I get, I'm just made in the image of God, so I'm going to be me. And show God what God's like as I do that. And you do that as well. And I don't have to like try to one-up you or you try to one-up me because that's not what it's about because it's not about us. It's about God and what he's like. And so let's do that together. Reflect what God's like to one another. Man, if you could get that, man, that would really help you. The other big takeaway here is that this means that, you know, according to who, Jesus, who God says we are, this means that you are, uh, uh, let's see how I put it, you aren't more valuable than anyone else. And you aren't less valuable than anyone else. 
You aren't more valuable than anyone else, and you're not less valuable than anyone else. That we're all equally valuable because we were all created to bear the image of God. We were all created to reflect the character of God. And therefore, we all have this incredible dignity, this incredible value, this incredible worth, because God has created us to do this big deal, help people see what he's like, and therefore everybody matters. And that's why in the, you know, when you understand this worldview taught in the Bible, that we would say like sexism and racism and classism and all that stuff, like it has no place in the church because everyone has equal value. You know, an unborn child or a born child, a sick person or a well person, an a, a old person or a young person. Like, it doesn't matter, black or white, rich or poor. Like, everybody has incredible value because they were all made in the image of God to bear God's image. And when you believe that, like, that will have a profound impact on how you see yourself and how you see others. Okay, a couple of things there. So that's, that's who does God say that we are? We're his image bearers. And our identity is received. It's not achieved. Now, there's one other person that wants to have some say in the game of who we are. We don't often think about this person. Um, and it's kind of even weird sometimes to talk about it. Even in church, it's kind of weird to talk about it. But, but Satan himself... Has, has a say. He, he has an opinion about who we are, and he wants us to believe that we are who he says that we are. So let's just ask the question, who does, who does Satan say that we are? Now, let me just say, quick aside here, um, it's Midtown Church, like, we believe that there is such thing as Satan. Like, we, we believe that we have an enemy, and, and that he is known as the father of lies, and uh, that he is not God. He's not a God. He's a created being. He's an angel that rebelled against God because he wanted the place of God. He wanted to be God. And so he rebelled against God. And so, but we believe that he's our, he's our enemy. And the reason we believe any of that, because it sounds kind of crazy sometimes, to be honest, but like, the Bible is real clear about it. And we believe the Bible is God's word. We, we really believe that it's truth and that God's told us that this like, is reality. And so we really do have an enemy. And that enemy, like I say, he's the father of lies. Like he just tells lies, lies, lie, lie. He's out to deceive us. He's out to harm us. And when it comes to the area of identity, man, he speaks to that a lot. And he tells a lot of lies in this regard. In fact, you know, Genesis 1 is what we're looking at where we saw that God gave us our identity. But in Genesis 3, just two chapters over, uh, Satan shows up on the scene and he's got something to say about who we are and how we can attain it. And so I just want us to reference that real quick. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say... Let me just stop there. Because, guys, this is what Satan does. Did, did, did God actually say... One of the major lies of Satan, one of the major, one of his major means of attacking us is that he wants to try to undermine the authority of God's word. He wants to, he wants to try to undermine the clarity of God's word. Because he knows that like, if this is, this, is, this is truth, and like, he's the father of lies, so if he could get us to disbelieve this, then man, he's, he's one. <laughs> and so he does. He tries to attack the clarity, the authority of God's word. And so being on guard there, 
That's where he starts off with, 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 with Adam and Eve. He says, did God, did God actually say, and then verse 5, he goes on, he says this. He says, for, for God knows that when you eat of it, speaking of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he says, knowing that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I want to just point this out to you because this, this is kind of fascinating to me. But like, what is, what is Satan saying? He's saying to Adam and Eve, in order to be like God, you have to what? You have to do something. And he's saying God doesn't want you to do that because he doesn't want you to be like him. That's a part of it. And so he's playing up to the pride, like, oh, you ought to be like God. And they're like, yeah, I should be like God. Because here's what's wild. One, the lie is you do something to be something. Your identity is achieved, not received, right? That's what's going on here. In addition, he's trying to get them to achieve something that they've already received. Genesis chapter 1, what does God say? I'm making you in my image, in my likeness. But Satan says, no, 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 you've got to do something to be like God. And Adam should have said, whoa, whoa, Satan, back off, dude. Like, I don't know if you didn't hear, but like, we already are like God. Like, he's already made us like him. That the way that we are reflecting to the created world what he is like, because he made us in his image. We're his mirrors. That's what he could have said. But instead, they bought into the lie. And they're like, oh, no, I need to do something in order to be something. And, yeah, I want to be like God, so I, gotta, I guess i got to do this thing. Man, we do that, don't we? Sad is like this is the first time that an identity crisis, and they erred in not trusting God, not believing what God said, not receiving the identity that God had given them, and thinking they had to do something instead, and so they sinned. And as a result of their sin, we all have sinned. As a result of their sin, everyone has been infected and affected by their sin. And one of the ways that that shows up is that deep, like penetrated, like just stuck in our heart is the idea that our identity is achieved and not received. Like that, that lie that they fell for, we fall for over and over again, every single one of us. We think that we got to do something in order to be something. And here's, here's the result, two, two things. One is that we have all become sinners. That this has given us their sin and the sin that's come as a result in our lives has made us into someone else, a, a new identity. And that identity is that we are sinners. And as sinners, we distort the image of God because we do what God would never do. We say what God would never say. We think what God would never think. And like a, like a cracked Funhouse, you know, carnival mirror. We distort and we mangle the image of God. And then, in addition, the other thing that happens from this is that we become idolaters. We 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 become people who worship lesser gods. And a part of what that worship looks like is going to other things, lesser things, and trying to let them give us our name, give us our identity. Now, when I talk about idols or idolatry, it's kind of, kind of a weird concept because most of us usually think about like a statue or a shrine or something like that, like that's what idolatry is. But in the Bible, idolatry is, is something much deeper, richer, uh, uh, more convicting, uh, more broad 
than, than just statue worship or something like that. In fact, in the, in the Bible, just a couple of helpful definitions here is that idolatry is shown to be that like when we, we take a good thing, oftentimes our idols are very good things, but we, we take these good things and we turn them into God things, and then they become bad things. That uh, idolatry is when we take a created thing and we put it in the creator's place. It's when we live for something or someone other than Jesus. It's, uh, idolatry is when we look to something else other than God to give us our ultimate security, significance, and satisfaction. When we look to something else to tell us who we are. Those are all kind of forms of idolatry. And what's sad is we all have idols. I mean, all of us do, me included. We all, we all worship other idols other things other than God. We, we're all passionate about. We all build our lives around at times. We, we run after, we look to other things other than God to give us our name, to give us our sense of security, our sense of significance, our sense of value, comfort, and identity. I've heard it said, uh, here's, here's a kind of helpful breakdown of, uh, of what an idol can be. Um, you want to go to the next slide there, Jeremy? Um, it's, you know, I'm just going to blow through this real quick, but here, here are different categories of idols. So I'm going to idol acronym. I stole this. Uh, so uh, I'm not big on acronyms anyways, because my dad's really big on them and I've kind of moved away from them, but I'm going into it right now. Um, items. So an, any kind of item can be a, an idol. Like, and that's really one of the reasons why what we buy for some of us really matters so much. What kind of house we live in, what size house we live in, where that house is situated in the city, uh, what kind of car we drive, what kind of clothes we wear, you know, for me, what shoes I wore. Like all those things, we look to our items to give us a sense of identity and to shape how we see ourselves and how others see ourselves. And like, that's, that's a good thing. Items can be good things, but when we look to them to name us, to give us an identity, we've turned them into God things. Uh, also duties. And so these would be things like, you know, the, the jobs that we have or the roles that we have. So it can be your, you know, your career, or it could be that you're a parent. It could be that you're a mother, that you're a father, or it could be that you're a student. But like all of these things, sometimes what we do is we say, okay, how I perform in these will tell me who I am. And so we try to, again, we buy into the lie that what I do tells me who I am. And instead of saying who I am should impact what I do. And so we flip it and we turn these things into idols. Or others, others is just very broad, but it, it's anyone in your life could be an idol. Anyone who has more, is more important to you than Jesus. Anyone whose opinion of you is more important than you, than Jesus' opinion of you. Any, anyone who you built your life around and say, like, I'm living for, for make sure that this person thinks well of me. Or I'm living to please this person above all else. Or these group of people. And and you get your identity from a group of people or from a tribe of people. You know, the community that you're with. All that can be a place of idolatry. Longings. Longings are just things like uh, the things that you really uh, are are hoping for, but, but maybe are making the center of your life. And you've bought into the idea that, man, if I could just have that job. If I just got that job. If I just got that grade point average, if I just got that girl, if I just got that guy, if we just had a a child, if we just on and on and on, if I just had that, then I would be somebody. 
That's a form of idolatry. And then sufferings, and this is perhaps the most sensitive one, and it's a really hard one, but the truth is, is that oftentimes the way we suffer really has a profound impact of shaping how we see ourselves, right? And you can actually even just take on that identity and say, like, well, I'm an abuse victim, or I'm an alcoholic, or I'm homeless, or I'm, you know, jobless, or I'm a cancer patient, or I'm a and just divorcee or whatever, and just fill in the blank. And, like, that's how you see yourself, and you've allowed that experience, what oftentimes what someone else has done to you to define you. And, guys, here's, here's the issue. And I just tell you this because I love you, and I just want to, like, put a finger on this thing, but, and I need to hear this myself, but, like, idols, all idols, will inevitably and eventually let us down. And that idols for a period of time can do for you what you hope that they would do for you. Sometimes they can. They can make you feel secure. They can make you feel like you are somebody and a real sense of identity, but they can't do it forever because anytime you ask something to do for you what it was never designed to do, it will fail you. And guys, they fail you. You have, you have a job, like you get this job and it's like the job and you're great at this job and you're like, I'm going to make a name for myself in this job and let's say the best thing happens, you get promoted all the way to the top of this job and it's like, this is who you are and still one day you walk out of that job retired, holding your belongings in a box and maybe a watch or a large bank account to show for it but you don't have that job anymore and it's no longer who you are. And you think, who am I now? And you've got to find someone else, something or someone else to run to to define who you are. For me, this is more a funny story, but like, I, I, basketball was a big idol for me. I didn't see it that way, but now looking back, it was when I was in school. I was, I was pretty good at basketball. And you can tell from my wiry frame that I was really, you know, really great at basketball. Not so much anymore, but I was. And um, I... Uh, I, I made a starting A team for, for, for our school, and, and uh, I found out that by being good at basketball, people think you're cool, and like they like you, and so I knew, like, man, if I could be at basketball, then I could be accepted, and people will like me, and they'll want to be around me, and so basketball became my god, and I, it could provide me security and friendships and satisfaction and all of this significance and a name. I'm Jake, and I'm good at basketball, and that meant a lot to me, and then one day, I... Uh, I babysat for my basketball coach, and don't ever do that, because I, uh, I babysat for the coach, and his kids were awful, and uh, this was back before the time of caller ID or cell phones, which really wasn't that long ago, but man, it feels like I just said back in the time of the dinosaurs, but anyways, back in that time, my mom called me while I was babysitting for the, for, for the coach, and she said, hey, how's it going? Well, First of all, I didn't answer the phone until it went to the answer machine because I didn't know who it was. And then I heard my mom on the answer machine. It was my mom. So I picked up the phone and she's asking me how it's going. And I said, it's awful. Like these kids are, the kids are horrible. I'm pretty sure I'd call them brats. And I kind of went on and on and on about it. Well, then I hung up, not knowing that it recorded the entire conversation. Next day, the wife of my basketball coach calls my mom and says, hey, I just, we just heard your conversation with Jake on an answer machine. I'm so sorry the kids were so bad. Is everything okay? And she's like really nice. She was really nice about it. The coach was not so, so nice. The next, 
the next year, I was on the bench of the, of the B team, all the way down to the bottom. Barely ever got to play. And my idol had failed me. And basketball had not done for me what it had not done for me what I hoped it would do. It, it let me down. And guys, that's what idols do. One way or another, they let you down. They cannot do what you're asking them to do because they are not God. And they were not designed to define you. They were not designed to identify you. They weren't designed to give you your security or your significance or the satisfaction that we look to for them to provide us. And when they let you down, you have two options. You can either run and try to find another idol to do for you what the last one was not able to do. Or you can run to Jesus. Why would you run to Jesus? What what does Jesus have to offer you? Well, guys, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that in this series. Who do you think you are? I'm really looking forward to it. But today, I just want us to barely get into it. We're, and I'm not going to spend much time on it at all, but I, I want us to get into two verses, uh, Ephesians 1, verses 1 and 2. So if you want, open up your Bibles to Ephesians 1, uh, verse 1. Let me read this, and then I just want to point out one really key concept that uh, gets fleshed out really strongly in the next three chapters. And so I just want us to draw attention to that. Ephesians 1, verse 1 and 2 says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the key concept, the big concept that I want to point out to us is that uh, Paul, that Paul talks about here is this idea of being in Christ. He says here, verse 1, in Christ Jesus. Because this is a rich theological concept that really has a lot to say about who we are. In fact, Paul talks about this a lot. In the 13 letters that he writes in the New Testament, he, he references being in Christ. He, sometimes he says in Christ, sometimes he says in him or in the beloved. But anyway, he references this idea 216 times. 216 times. In the beginning of Ephesians, it's, it's like 20 times uh, right at the, very big, at the very beginning. But like 216 times. Why do you talk about something 216 times? One, it's because it's very important, right? We can get that. Two, it's because people forget it. The only, thing, the only time you tell someone something 216 times is because, man, they, they're forgetting it. And guys, man, we forget this. And so let's talk about why this is so important and why we should not forget it. This idea of being in Christ, let me, let me just read this. It's, it's, it's the idea that if you've placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, believing that he died and rose again, then, then you are in Christ, and God has made you into a new person, and he has given you a new identity. You still have the identity that he gave all humans, that of his image bearers as, as his mirrors, but, the, but the, the identity that came as a result of the belief and the lie that our identity is achieved and not received, those things, being a sinner and being an idolater, this, being in Christ, counteracts both of those. And you go from being a sinner to being in Christ. And what that means is that at the cross of Jesus Christ, he traded places with us. That according to the Bible, Jesus literally traded places with you and with me. 
that the punishment and death and shame and condemnation that I deserve all went to Jesus. And that all of the forgiveness, all of the love, all of the grace that Jesus rightly has and deserves as a sinless son of God comes to me and comes to you if you are in Christ. It's as if we actually stand in him. I mean, if you want to picture this, it's as if when God sees you, he sees Jesus. This is incredibly powerful, guys. Let me just ask you, do you think the Father loves the Son? Do you think that the Father hears the Son when the Son talks to him? Do you think that the Father embraces the Son at all times? Do you think the Father's love never stops flowing to the Son? Do you think that the Father always blesses the Son? Well, guys, He does. And if you're in Christ Jesus, that means He does that for you as well. And that is amazing. And guys, it's so amazing. It's such a big deal that in the beginning of this letter, how does Paul address the Ephesians? What does he call them? He writes, he writes this, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the what? To the saints. To the saints. That this is that being in Christ has such a profound impact on our identity. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer a sinner in identity, in position. You are now a saint. Is that how you see yourself? Is that how you see God seeing you? Is that when you pray, is that the posture that you see God has for you, the same posture that he would have for his own son, God the son, as if he was talking to the father? Is that how you see yourself? Is that how you see God relating to you? Well, it ought to be. And here's what's awesome, is that this, again, this is an identity that is given to us. It is received by us. It is given freely by God. We did not do anything to deserve it. To be in Christ is a free gift. It's it's faith alone that we receive it, that, that God gives it based not on what we have done, but what Christ alone has done for us. And when we receive this identity from God, just like we are to receive the first identity, that we are his image bearers, when we receive this identity from God, then we are saints. And we're no longer sinners in position. Now, yes, you'll still sin. Saints will sin at times. But you're always a saint. You're sometimes a sinner. God will always see you as a saint because that is who you are because you are in Christ. This will be at one point when, we, when Christ returns, when we get a glorified body, we will be fully in Christ and all that is Christ will be us. We will be like him as John chapter, 1 John chapter 3 talks about. But now, positionally, we are in him. And you may say, well, I don't feel that way. And I would say to that, let God's truth determine what you believe and not your feelings. This is truth, guys. You are in Christ. You are saints. The other thing that this means for us is that uh, this changes us from being idolaters to being worshipers of God. 
from being idolaters to being worshipers of God. See, idolaters worship. They just don't worship God. They worship the thing or person or career or whatever they think will give them what only God can really give them. You know, the security, the significance, satisfaction, identity. But when you are in Christ, you realize your identity is found in him and you're moved to worship him. For you begin to see how he and he alone can answer the question of our heart and meet the longings of our heart. See, we are to worship the creator and enjoy and steward created things. And our identity is to be received from God, not achieved by something that we have done or that others have done to us. And this allows everything to be in its rightful place. Now we can love people with, without requiring them to be a God for us. Now we can enjoy things without pretending that they're going to make it heaven on earth for us. And we can do that because we realize we don't need them to be that for us because we have an awesome God that's granted us grace and peace to us in Christ Jesus and that he is all we need. Now, guys, this is a life-transforming truth. It really is. But it's abstract. Sometimes it's hard to get your mind around what this can really mean and, and how it should show up in our lives. And so let me just tell you a story. I asked... Um, Kristen Kaling's permission uh, to tell her story today as an illustration of what this uh, life transforming truth can do in a person. And uh, she was very kind to let me uh, tell her story. And she sent it to me, she wrote it out, and she sent it to me. And I just want to read some of this to you. This is Kristen's story. She says, uh, Chris, Kristen and uh, Chris, Kristen's mother and father were both alcoholics. They were extremely violent to one another. And her father would abuse her mother on a very regular basis, sending her to the hospital often. And her parents uh, ended up getting a divorce when she was nine. And, the, and in the divorce, uh, Kristen stayed with her mom, but her two sisters went to go live with her grand, grandparents because her mom couldn't handle raising all of them together. And so her, her mom just had Kristen at home, and then her mom, through the divorce, through the through kids going to live with grandparents, she just started to spiral in, into depression. And one of the results of that was that she began to really neglect Kristen. By, uh, by that time, she was 12, and she began to do all kinds of things to numb her pain. She began stealing things and taking drugs, and eventually her mom uh, realized that Krista... Kristen was uh, kind of spinning out of control, and she wanted to get her some help, and so she sent her to go live with her dad, who at that time was the man that she hated more than anyone else, having seen him beat his mom so often. Well, she, uh, living with, with her, her dad, she just threatened to run away all over and over again, and so her dad finally uh, sent her to go live with her dad's brother, her uncle, and uh, her uncle and her aunt. But unfortunately, her uncle and her aunt's home was n- no less violent than the home that she grew up in. And her uncle would beat her aunt. And then uh, to make uh, matters much, much worse, uh, her, her uncle uh, began to sexually abuse Kristen in the most horrific way. And uh, that went on for three years. Finally, when she couldn't uh, bear it any longer, she uh, told one of her friends, and her friend told the school counselor. The police were called. 
her uncle was arrested and was eventually sentenced to 12 years in jail. But her dad's side of the family didn't believe Kristen, didn't believe that that was going on. They blamed Kristen for, her, for his arrest, told her it was her fault. Kristen went to go back to live with, with her mom, and uh, to, as you can imagine, all of the pain and loneliness, horrible feelings that she had, she began to try to numb her pain all the more, and so she turned to uh, you know, drugs and alcohol and sex, along with she tried other things, too, like more positive to see if it would like, try to heal her heart. She started doing sports and tried to start making good grades in school, but nothing seemed to help heal her heart. But then something absolutely supernatural and amazing happened. As Kristen tells it, she said that something just started pulling at her heart and towards God. And she met this guy, Bobby, who she would eventually marry. And both of them were kind of coming from a similar spot and neither of them were, were, had really any relation with God, but they both felt like they needed to. And so they, they started pointing each other towards Jesus, and they started going to a church. And on one Sunday, she, having heard the gospel, that God loved her so much that he sent his son to die for her, that whoever believes in him can not perish but have everlasting life, she put her faith in Christ. And for Kristen, the transformation was, on a heart level, very radical. That she began to understand that even though she had been an enemy of God, that God did not give up on her, but pursued her and chased her down like a father that really loves his child. And as a girl who had been passed around from home to home and mistreated and neglected, to have a father that wanted her that bad really spoke to her heart. To have a father that loved her so much that he would die for her, that to send his son Christ to die for her, that she could be a part of the family and actually be in Christ, and that God the Father would relate to her as he relates to his own son. That she could become a part of a family for the first time, a loving family, the family of God. That she could, uh, she said that, as a result, her heart began to heal and the hate began to turn to love. And that all of the questions that she had about who she was began to get answered in the person of Christ. And though she had done many sinful things, she began to see herself as holy and blameless and the bride of Christ, the spotless child of Christ, because she was in Christ. And it radically, guys, it radically changed her. If you know Kristen, you know, you know I know Bobby really well. Bobby, like, he's got a great wife. He says it all the time. Kristen's an awesome mom. Two beautiful girls. She's an incredible friend to many of us here. She loves God. She serves God in so many different ways. Guys, that's God's transformation transforming work in her life, changing her. And that these things are not the things that she, do, that she does, like being a good mom, being a good wife. That's not what she does in order to be 
received and accepted by God. It's, it's what she does as a result of being received and accepted by God. She is in Christ. She is a saint. And now she gets to live that reality out. Guys, if you're in Christ and you are too, Do you know it? Are you letting it define you? Are you receiving that from our God? Our fundamental problem is that we don't understand who we truly are, children of God made in his image, and instead define ourselves by any number of things other than Jesus. But guys, here's the truth. You aren't what's been done to you, but what Jesus has done for you. You aren't what you do, but what Jesus has done. What you do doesn't determine who you are. Rather, who you are in Christ should determine what you do. And here's my prayer, is that through, the, through today and through this series, you'll find that the answer to the question, who am I, is that you are in Christ, who is I am. And I pray that you will believe that you receive your identity from God and that you'll quit, and that I will quit trying to achieve it. God says you are in Christ, and as a result, you are a saint. And as a result, you can live as Christ. That's beautiful, as a beautiful reflection of our great and good and gracious God. Let me pray for us. God, may we believe this. Yeah, I just, I feel like I could speak for all of us right now and just confess that we so often forget this or live as if it's not true. You know, we think that our identity can be achieved and it has to be achieved. When we look to lesser gods in order to give us a name, to give us, to tell us who we are. And God, we just confess that and we, we say we're sorry. God, may we believe the truth that you have given us an identity and it's good and you have blessed us and you have placed us in Christ if we put our faith in you. And Lord, that we would relate to you and to others in light of who we are. God, I pray that you use this series to, to really root that into our heart, that we would really understand who we are in Christ and we would receive all of the blessings that come as a result. For your glory and our good, God, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.